This series really has been designed to look at some of the objective evidences for the Christian faith, um, historical, scripture, the person of Jesus, those type of conversations. Um, but there is also this deeply personal experience that comes into play. And I know we live in a day and an age where personal experience can outweigh much of, of anything. And, and honestly, that's not always the wisest way to build your life. But there is something deeply personal that affects the heart and the soul when it comes to the Christian faith. Uh, objective evidence is presented. There is still a personal response that comes from those things. And many of you can tell those stories. That moment of personal encounter with Christ where you recognized Him as Savior. Whether you needed a bunch of evidences or you heard the gospel clearly presented and knew that Jesus forgave sin and you said, Hallelujah, that's me. I need that. I know I need those things. And so I, I don't want you to separate head and heart in this series because Jesus said to love the Lord with your head and your heart. And I think sometimes we forget that our head is involved with this. And that there are those things that, that Paul did. And, and even in the scriptures, there's reasoning with people uh, and helping them understand and see the truth to the scriptures. And so we have been in a series that has really tried to deal with objective truth, but I cannot get away from the personal experience of knowing Christ, deeply moved in heart and in soul. Uh, and uh, several years ago, I read a statistic about how the world, at, the, at what rate the world is changing and I think it's Dr. Richard Swenson, someone much smarter than myself, said more change has happened since 1900 than in all prior recorded history. And I know for some of you who don't like to think big, but that is a huge statement. And he says that more change will occur in the next 20 years than the entire last century. And I'm sure that statistic has already changed <laughs> because things are so rapidly changing. But there are a couple of things in life that do not change, and that is Malachi 3.6, God says, I do not change. I don't change. So God is making it clear through His Word that He doesn't change. But I'd also suggest that human nature really doesn't change either. And what I mean by that is we are human beings moved by evidence. When we see something and we go, wow, that's true, we are, we're moved and we're stirred by it. Now, according to the Bible... Because of sin, we actually suppress what might be true, mainly because of our own desires and our own personal preference. But it doesn't mean that we're not stirred by evidence. We are. When something, we, we find something out that backs up what we've been saying or believing, we're just like, yes, thank you for that evidence. That's because God wired us that way. He made us to respond to those things that are true. And when evidences present themselves, they excite us. And that's a good thing. Um, when I was in high school, one of the first verses of Scripture that I ever committed to memory was 1 Peter 3.15 and 16. And it says this, You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. In the book of Jude, verse 3, Dear friends, I had eagerly planned to write you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to His holy people. And this is not about fists. 
but speaking what is true and speaking against the things that are not true. C.S. Lewis said it this way, The question isn't really if we will defend the Christian faith, but if we will defend it well. Every single one of you in this room that claims Christ as Savior is a defender of the faith. You may not think of yourself that way, but that's what C.S. Lewis is speaking of. Every single one who claims Christ as Savior is a defender of this faith that we declare. But do we do it well? Have we thought enough that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is true, and there are people that do need to know those things, do our lives, do our words, do the way we interact, do they declare something to be true about Jesus? And this series has been designed to help both the Christ follower and the personal the person with questions, who could be one and the same person? We're very aware of that. Dealing with the roadblocks to faith, but also helping put a firm foundation for some of you who are beginning this journey as, fo- as followers of Christ. We talked about being sincere. Is that, a, is that what we're supposed to be, just genuine? Or is it more important, the object of your faith? We talked about God and suffering and the fact that that evil does exist and sin exists in this world, but yet there's a God who's all-powerful and loving and how that can cause people to ask questions about, can this really be true? And last week we talked about Jesus being the only way and why Jesus is different and what evidences support those statements. And I don't have time to recap any of them. I want to encourage you, if you've been journeying or struggling with any of those questions, to make it a front-burner issue. Stop putting these things to the side, because I'm telling you, um, it's interesting, because in North Carolina, we love the crosswalk. We love the fact that we have to stop and let people cross the street when they're in it. If you've ever been in West Asheville, it's a dangerous thing to try and cross the street in West Asheville. I'll tell you who's more dangerous, though. An undecided crosswalk user is a danger to everyone around them. I want you to know that when cars look at somebody and they're, they're kind of like, oh, no, no, I, no, no, and then they stop and then they start and they're almost accidents. I've seen it happen a number of times. I believe it's the same thing for us. If we're sitting here going, well, maybe I'll think about, no, 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 it's dangerous ground to be on. That's why I say, make Jesus a front burner issue because it matters who you say he is what you do with Christ. This week, looking at Jesus, the crutch, and the argument goes like this. Maybe you've heard it this way. Well, Jesus is what you run to when you have a problem, just like I run to booze, relationships. Jesus is what props you up so you can deal. I've heard it. I've heard it from people who are well-meaning and just say, well, you've got your crutch, I've got mine. We all got crutches, and Jesus just happens to be yours. This isn't a new thought either. Um, Right around the 19th century, Karl Marx said it this way, religion is the opiate of the masses. Meaning, and, and what he's saying, and we'll dive into this in just a second, that he's assuming several things by this statement. That is, number one, humans can't cope with the hardships of life. Human beings just can't deal with life, sickness, disappointment, suffering, and death. And then he also assumes that because human beings need assurance about the unknown when it comes to life after death, they came up with these elements. And it was a product, ultimately, of evolution. And this 
this idea caught on. And I mean, if you do the historical research, this, this idea that religion coming around because of evolution, is, it, it's completely debunked. And so I just want to encourage you with that. But this is not a statement that was just made in the early 19th century. Uh, comedian and outspoken atheist Richard, Rich, Ricky Gervais on Twitter is constantly attacking those who have a religious faith. And he made a movie several years ago called The Invention of Lying. And the premise of the movie is pretty silly in that the world does not know how to lie. And he's been living in this world, and there's a moment in his brain where he is actually at a bank about to take some money out because his life is falling apart. And he's told he only has, the bank system is down, and he wants to withdraw all of his money because he needs it. And there's a moment in his brain where some evolutionary happening occurs... And he figures out how to lie. He's the first person in history to be able to lie. And he lies and says, hey, I have $800 in my bank account. He gets the $800. And the woman is like, but your bank account says there's only $300. It must be our system's fault. Here's your $800. Anything else I can help you with? I mean, so there's this funny premise that begins with it. And he works for an, a, 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 writing a writing group. And all the movies that have come out in this world are all about history. So they're all terribly dull, terribly boring. There's no fiction allowed. And so as a writer, he says he finds this manual uh, from the 13th century. And he begins to read it. And he includes aliens, spaceships, dinosaurs, everything like that. And everyone around the table is going, this is incredible. We've never heard anything like this. Because he's the first person to be able to lie. You think it's this cute movie, but about 45 minutes in, it makes a turn. And he's sitting with his mother at her deathbed. The doctor, who cannot lie, says to her, Yep, you're going to die. And she begins to be very afraid and cries. And Ricky's character is sitting there with her. Because she says, Well, after you die, there's nothing. It's loneliness and darkness, and I just can't deal with that. And, and Ricky's character says, Well, Mom... It's not nothing. It's the greatest, greatest gift you could think of. It's a, it's a happy place. You get to see all of your loved ones. You get to, and he goes down this long list, and then she passes away. And right after she passes away, all the nurses and the doctors are standing there going, please tell us more about what you know about dying. And so the rest of the movie is him basically hiding away in a, in a room, becoming this worldwide obsession of a guy who knows about eternity, but he knows he made it up just to comfort his dying mother. It becomes an agenda, it becomes this idea that there are people, and Ricky Gervais, along with most outspoken atheists, assume that they have reached this level of intelligence, or they are at a place or position in life where they need no crutch. They are strong enough to deal with life without any crutches. And the worse, the deeper assumption is that there are those who would be considered weak as Christ followers to believe these things, that only non-religious people are brave, and religious people are weak, specifically Christians. And the truth is, to suggest that only Christians are weak and in need of a crutch is to reject 2,000 years of history. Dan's story said it this way, Christians are not weak people. 
In modern society where the Christian worldview is ridiculed and rejected in movies, books, television, newspapers, and universities, where individual, where individual Christians are mocked for their faith and rejected by friends and co-workers when they try to talk about their Lord, it is far, far easier to be an unbeliever. Those who claim Christians are weak have never tried to live an active Christian life. The scripture paints a picture for you and I, and it is one of relationship. A relationship between God and man, and as Miss Sue has pointed out, a, a, a relationship of total dependence. Complete and total dependence. God as creator, us as creature or creation. This means that we depend on God for our very existence. And in short, I hope you know that the Christ follower is not saying Jesus is a crutch that props us up. But he is the entrance into relationship with God, who we were made to know. To include Jesus as an addition to our life, just so I can get to my next goal. To treat Jesus as a lucky rabbit's foot is to reject what Jesus said of himself. Jesus did not come and say, hey, if you just look at me every once in a while, ask me, I'll grant you three wishes. He said, no, you will die to yourself. You will take up your cross and you will follow me daily. Just think if one of your friends said that to you. No, <laughs> absolutely not. But if he is Lord and Savior, then he is able to say such big words, knowing that we were meant to hear them. In Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he's not writing to a church that has it all together. If you've ever read, uh, read First or Second Corinthians, it really does play out more like a Jerry Springer show, full of dysfunction everywhere. And one of the things that these Corinthian people are obsessed with is comparisons. They are completely obsessed with who learned from who, who got to sit with who, who listened to who, and they are totally obsessed. And it's just like our society, honestly. I mean, we would all show our podcast list of what pastors have we listened to, what great speakers have we listened to, and we do that. That's what we do. We're just like them. And Paul is saying that these super apostles, that they're, call, they're calling them, they have a major problem, and that is they're taking the focus off of Christ and putting it on human achievement. What can we do? What can we make? And they're basically going back to the system of the law. You better straighten up, and if you are straight enough, like if you're straightening up enough, you can boast about these things. And Paul says, this is a problem. Over and over, if you read Paul's letters, suggesting a dependence on ourselves apart from God, it's quite possibly the worst thing a human being can do. And so as he's writing to this Corinthian church, Paul knows that they've been boasting about their works and their achievements. And Paul says, look, you guys sound like idiots, so I'm going to sound like an idiot for you just now. All right? Let me sound like an idiot. I'm going to join in with everyone else's foolish talk about boasting what they do. I know Jesus doesn't need to do this, but here's how I'm going to answer your arguments. And so he does. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. Again, I say, that's because he's already said, I'm going to act like a fool in just a second. So he's saying it again. Again, I say, don't think that I'm a fool to talk like this. But even if you do, listen to me, as you would to a foolish person, while I also boast a little. 
Such boasting is not from the Lord, but I am acting like a fool. So he's doing what they do, just so he can prove the point. And since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. After all, you think you are so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when someone slaves you, takes everything you have, takes advantage of you, takes control of everything, and slaps you in the face. You know, I'm ashamed to say that we've been too weak to do that. But whatever they dare to boast about, I'm talking like a fool again. I dare to boast about it too. If Paul's words sound a little stingy in tone, they are. Paul's not messing around here. He's saying, look, you're putting up with some things that are not the gospel. And sometimes you have to say hard words so that someone will go, oh, right, I forgot. I've been totally duped. The wool has been pulled over my eyes. His sarcasm points to abuses that these false teachers have held over the people. And if you don't like his strategy, it really is just Proverbs that he's Following in, line, following in line with Proverbs 26.5, be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own estimation. It's funny because the verse right before that says, do not answer fools or you'll become foolish like them. So it's like these two verses back to back. One says do, one says don't, and that's discernment. You and I both need to know when do we answer a fool and when do we just let a fool speak. And Paul's saying, look, fools are speaking and I have to answer them because they will become wise in their own estimation, which is a problem as well. He continues, Are they Hebrews? And I love this about his, his whole boasting because it's a strange boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times in the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Folks, the person who was actually doing the, the whipping would not be found guilty if people died under that whip because it happened so often. Five different times he went under 39 lashes Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. How many times have you been shipwrecked? I've never been. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I am not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas kept guards at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through a window in the city wall to escape from him. This is a very strange boasting list. This is not the normal boast list. This is not... 
us creating a Facebook page to make it look like everything is awesome. It's the, one of Portlandia, one of the show's episodes, they, they came up with the phrase, everyone is just cropping out the sadness. I believe it. This is not one of those moments. This is Paul choosing to say, in all of those moments, he carried me. In all of these moments, he walked with me. It wasn't as if God was at the end of the tunnel saying, come on, Paul, you can get to me through this struggle. No, he was with him in the struggle. Now, we can talk about all the the harm that came physically to Paul. But there was another burden or hurt that he carried, and that was a huge concern for all the churches that he helped start. Can you imagine having a care and concern for all the people under your leadership that have come to know Christ? Can you imagine the sleepless nights because one person is experiencing harm, tragedy, being led astray. The physical weight, not just of the abuse that he took, but also the care and concern that we are instructed to have for one another, Paul took very seriously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, his first letter to the Corinthian church, he says this, if one part suffers all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Paul said that he would boast in his weakness. And it's interesting, if you consider the story, Paul's conversion, Saul to Paul, he was headed from Jerusalem to Damascus. And that is where Christ encountered Saul. Saul believed the, the gospel in those moments, but as he was entering into Damascus, he held in his hand essentially letters that spoke of how great he is. Essentially in his hand were letters saying, let Paul do what Paul's going to do. Saul hunt these Christians, he'll get them taken care of. He was being championed and cheered on by Jews and Gentiles as he hunted Christians. You know how he left Damascus? Squeaky, squeaky, squeaky being lowered down out of a window in a basket, completely aware of his total dependence on God. He went in with human authority and all that he could do on his own, but he left in a basket out a window, completely aware that there is no life apart from God. And Paul continues into chapter 12 and he shares about this experience that the Lord lets him have a vision of, of heaven and of, of Christ and of paradise and apparently it was enough to continue to fuel him. And he says it this way in, in verse 5, that experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because... I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. What if that's all you have to tell the story of the gospel? 
is your life and the message of the gospel. Paul has all these things that he could point to, talk about, run to. He says, I don't want to give anybody any reason to put trust in anything other than the gospel. Verse 7, even though I have received so much wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Part of the reason Jesus is a crutch has gained such traction in the United States is unfortunately because the church has treated him as such. Part of the reason the crutch mentality with Jesus in particular gets thrown out there is because for the church, we've kind of been okay with that. We've kind of been okay with Christmas and Easter. We've kind of been okay with, well, when things get really tough, I'm going to look, I'm going to cry out to God. And then maybe I'll tip my hat to him if things are good. Maybe. I might not even. Because when things are bad, it's God's fault. When things are good, it's my fault. It's kind of how we operate in the U.S. So the reason this crutch mentality, I believe, has gained traction is because we're not absolutely sure why Jesus came to do what he came to do. When I was in middle school, uh, I lived a lot of my middle school years on crutches. I had surgeries on my legs. And uh, the best example I can give you is that while I was on those crutches, all I wanted to do was to be able to operate my life as normal. That's why they give you crutches, so that you can keep doing what you're doing on crutches. Though you be wounded, though you be hurt, though you be down for the count, you get this crutch to live your life as normally as possible. So as a 6th and 7th grade student, I'm thinking, nothing's going to stop me from hanging out with my friends, nothing's going to stop me from doing what I want to do, I'm going to go to everything, I'm gonna, everything is going to be normal. I mean, I got good on crutches, my armpits were sore most of the time, but man, I was, I was not going to let anything stop me from being me, from doing me, from doing what I wanted to do. Crutches made it possible to keep living my life. The problem with treating Jesus this way, to get me to my desire, is to not understand the gospel. Jesus is not a means to some other end. I don't just lean on Jesus when I want a new job or meet the perfect spouse or I want to get that bill paid. Because honestly, with that mentality, we'd be happy with that thing happening more than knowing Christ. This is the problem. When we treat Jesus as a means to an end rather than the end itself, we treat Jesus as a way to keep doing our life and we're just going to throw him in the mix. I don't know if you've seen the the mummy where that scene where that guy, he's got all the religious symbols on his neck and he's in trouble and all he does is he holds up all the different religious symbols and then finally the, the, the trouble responds to one of those symbols. As Christ followers, we can just throw Jesus' name into it. Somebody who just wants to be well-rounded or religious or whatever it is, and 
We invoke the name of, of Jesus or, or Buddha or a Hindu god or some new age secret thought process. If I change my thoughts, I change my world. If I change, if I change everything about that I think positively about, then positive things will start happening. We just lean on these things so that we can actually get to what we really want. And if you'd be content with that thing that you want, you've just identified your idol. More so than just having Jesus. But in Paul's request to the Lord to take away his struggle, he's not treating Jesus as a crutch. More than that, God doesn't treat Jesus as a crutch. The Lord responds to Paul with himself. He says, I am everything you need. You don't need anything else. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God made us invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it won't run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There isn't any other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God can't give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it isn't there. There's no such thing. Christianity is held up by many objective truths, evidences. But there are few things that point to the truth of Christ's life, death, and resurrection like a life fueled by those things. Your story, my story, every story built on these essentially three basic needs— physical, the food, the clothing, the shelter, and that's our environment around us. Emotional or psychological when we have love and acceptance and self-esteem and we find those things in relationships. But then there is also the spiritual. The spiritual fulfillment, peace of mind that there is a God who can answer life's biggest questions in a real and believable way that's consistent with reality. That's important to know that he can answer life's greatest questions is something the human heart has to be sure of. We were made to run that way. And in a society that is drifting farther and farther and farther away from the spiritual component, where we're only saying that people only need the physical needs and the emotional needs taken care of, you will find people who overcompensate and become very proud about everything, or you find people who are very afraid. Very afraid that their bubble is going to burst, that their physical needs aren't going to be met somehow, or that their emotional relationships aren't going to last, and they're just ready to crumble, and, 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 then, and then things, and then that peace that I, suppose, I was supposed to have by having just my physical or my emotional needs met, when those things disappear, the peace also disappears. Dan's story said it this way, on the other hand, peace of mind founded on spiritual fulfillment will never die because its stability rests on the eternal power of God, not on human strength, success, or earthly objects. Having our spiritual longing met can result in peace of mind even when we don't have all the physical and emotional needs met. But the opposite is not true. I've read studies of many people who are supposed to be the most emotionally healthy people in the United States, whether they be psychiatrists, doctors, the suicide rate is just as high 
But I've also read the studies of the joy and fulfillment that comes from prisons. When a prisoner comes to know the forgiveness of Christ. They don't have all those things, but they have been transformed by the grace of God and truly have found peace that does pass every bit of human understanding we might have. Regardless of how satisfying one's life is with regard to good health, good money, good emotions, there exists a longing for something more that is not found in the temporary. Peace of mind only through, God, through Christ and faith in Him. Paul's boast that even in his weakness, God meets him. Even when suffering, the grace of God found in Christ Jesus meets his need. God's grace transforms what is important in our perspective on what we need. Paul's message, very simply, I am weak, God is strong, and there is no other way to live life. I am weak, he is strong, and I will live life no other way. As the band comes and we close this morning. The more you and I, and this is the warning to you, the more you and I are aware that peace in Christ is what we are looking for, we can recognize our rebellion against it. And what I mean by rebellion is it's, you've got two ways that the human heart rejects this peace of Christ. Because the Bible does say we suppress it. We push it down. We may know it's true, but we just go, you know what? I don't like the sound of it. I don't want it. And we reject it in one of two ways. We absolutely reject that God exists, atheism, or we reject Jesus and we find other spiritual paths. Those are the two ways the human heart rejects the peace of mind that, is in, that we are invited to in Christ. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've considered but when it comes to the strong pull of the heart and the emotion and the soul, there's a deep, deep, deep satisfaction that comes in knowing that there is a God, that he made us for him, and that not even our sin could keep us from him. He made a way home through faith in Christ. Yes, he can answer the philosophical questions of why do I exist? How did we get here? What was I made for? Where will I spend eternity? What is eternity about? How do I know all of those things? Having that, those questions answered is a part of a human experience. But there is the practical. And John chapter 3 says this, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Other religions may offer rules and regulations. Other non-religions may offer you rules and regulations that give you the top ten lists on how to have peace. Those things are there. Which is one of the differences we mentioned about Jesus last week is that the Christian message is not a, ten a top ten list. It's an announcement. It's an announcement that there is a holy God whose fierce love for His creation would not be stopped by our rebellion, but that Christ died for sinners. And it's through faith in Christ, not in our own abilities, that brings us safely home. That's the gospel announcement. It is not a list 
a heavy bogged down book of, of rules and regulations that you and I must attain on our own and maybe throw some Jesus in there. No, Jesus is life. That is what the scriptures suggest. And we're not propping ourselves up or supporting our own endeavors, but Jesus has invited us to a completely new endeavor. It's the kingdom of God. And he's made a way. And it isn't about your depending on your abilities. It's saying, God, I believe that you've made a way home. And it is through Jesus. J.I. Packer said it this way. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So, is he only a crutch in times of trouble for you? Or is he the one who carries you completely? Are you trying to build peace on your physical and emotional needs only being met? Maybe throwing some Christian language in there if that helps. Or do you know that Jesus came to bring the wholeness that you and I long for? That's what peace is. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's being made whole. So will you come to Jesus? Matthew 11, Jesus said it this way. Come to me, all of you who are weary, carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. This morning there's going to be some, some folks standing over to, to my left and I'll be standing over here. Come to Jesus. I think that's the simplest invitation of a Christ follower. Just come to him. Don't come to me. Don't come to the people that are standing there. But if you need help in knowing what does that look like, how do I unpack those things, that's what these people are here for. They don't save you. I don't save you. Jesus saves you. Come to Jesus. Father, we love you. And I just ask that we would stop. Stop all of our games. Stop all of our trying and, and striving to have all the physical and emotional needs taken care of and ignoring Jesus. Lord, I thank you for those momentary, those, 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 those times in life where yes, maybe all of our physical needs and our emotional needs are taken care of and that we do have this, this sense of, hey, things are well, but when things aren't well, we come unraveled. Lord, I pray that, that you'd guard us Guard us until we see Jesus as who he says he is. And I pray this morning that there will be those who will recognize they have left Jesus out of the picture. And it's time to come home. It's in your name we pray.